Hey everyone, this week we have something really special for you on Torched. We have an episode of the sports documentary podcast, American Prodigies. Each week, American Prodigies will tell gymnast stories, unraveling what it means to be a black girl navigating overwhelmingly white spaces, demanding, exacting, sometimes toxic spaces. Their stories consider the burden of visibility, the weight of expectation, the anguish of injury, and the joy of winning. For the first time, black girl gymnasts, who are now black women, openly reflect on the mental and physical cost of growing up in a sport made of prodigies. With interviews from gymnasts, coaches, judges, and experts, and sonically rich journeys into the past, American Prodigies will give longtime gymnastics fans new insights and grab the attention of those who normally only tune in every four years. The season covers the life and careers of legendary gymnasts like Dominique Dawes, Gabby Douglas, Jordan Childs, and Simone Biles. Keep listening now for an episode of American Prodigies and hear new episodes every Monday. You can find the link in the episode description. Thanks. I, uh, I think you guys will really enjoy this. Before we start, a quick content note. This episode contains accounts of physical, emotional, and sexual abuse, eating disorders, racism, and death. You'll also hear some swearing. Previously on American Prodigies. I was like, oh my God, this girl's about to win nationals. It showcased to the entire country that a little black girl from Gary, Indiana could be the best gymnast in the country. My mother sure did get in the car and drive four and a half hours just to witness Diane win. She was one of a kind and opened the door for so many young brown-skinned girls. Life is too short to be bitter and live in the world of what might have happened if I was on the 1984 Olympic team. She always felt, you know, maybe America wasn't ready for a black gymnast to be on a weakness box. In the early 90s, NBC hosted an annual sports special called the Sudafed Skating and Gymnastics Spectacular. Why they would name it after something that puts you to sleep? Not a question I could answer. Shows like these were usually post-Olympic tours, but the 1992 special was all about pre-Olympic fever. That means hello. <laughs> In this part of the special, Nadia Comaneci visits her former coach, Bella Caroli, at his gym outside of Houston, Texas. They walked around the gym, reminiscing on training sessions and former glory. But Nadia was also there to get a sense of what audiences should be excited to see at the upcoming Summer Olympics in Barcelona. Bella's latest prodigies, Kim Zemeskel and Betty Okino, were poised to dominate. By the way, did you hear that? No? Betty does three periods on the B. Wow. Can you believe? No. It's amazing. You want to see it? Yeah. Hey, Betty, where are you? You want to try one? Great. Betty stands tall, squares off with the end of the beam, and quickly spins around three times on one foot, with the other foot pointed gracefully near her ankle. She doesn't wobble at all. Wow. <laughs> is it amazing? This triple turn on beam is called the Okino. I think the first time I saw her do the triple turn, I just couldn't even believe that someone could do that on the balance beam. That's Rebecca Schumann, 
She was a gymnast in the 80s and 90s. Now she coaches and writes about gymnastics for Slate. Because it doesn't flip, people think, well, how hard can that be? I will just say that no one does it, even now in a system that prizes difficulty over execution or has been accused of doing so, you just still don't see it. You don't see it. You see it in the wolf position, the ugly ass wolf turn, but you you don't see it up in the beautiful upright Aquino position very much. I loved the precision of beam. And I think I always loved that in order to do beam, you have to be able to bring yourself down to here and completely focus. That's Betty today. When you watch that clip from 92, she looks completely focused. It's as if her hero, Nadia, isn't just standing off camera. I came into the sport through... (laughs) The book of Nadia. My mom read me that story over and over and over from like the age of five. I mean, Nadia, she's standing right there. And Betty is still cool as a cucumber. Learning how to like bring your anxiety to a place of calm and then focus it. Taught right, it is a powerful tool, like in life. The stakes of a fluff piece during a skating and gymnastics spectacular Might not seem high, but not only is Nadia watching, Betty knows she can't slip up in front of Bella. Once the cameras were off, there would have been consequences. In the early 90s, the U.S. program is a dictatorship. Marta and Bella are the dictators. What they say goes. Labeled Lord Jim by Sports Illustrated, Bella had total control over his gymnast. And he demanded perfection, especially as the pressure of success at the Olympics loomed closer and closer. Training got more intense. I mean, I heard you tell a story once that like really stuck to me. And you were talking about how like the night before the U.S.-Romanian dual meet in Houston, you were hitting everything. Mm -hmm. And you were like living your best life. I was. (laughs) That was so good. Betty finished her assignments early that practice, before the rest of her teammates, who had been falling all over the place and putting Bella in a terrible mood. He lashed out at Betty. Instead of rewarding her effort with rest, he told her to go train a new beam dismount, something she wouldn't even need to do in the upcoming competition. And Betty, of course, obeyed. So the fear was, if I stand up and say something right now, like, dude, I'm done. I did the assignment. I did it really well. These guys can't work it out, but that's not my problem. I should be able to, obviously not with so much sass, I should be able to go sit down and stretch. Like there's no need for me to do this. It's an upgraded dismount. I'm not going to compete it. Doesn't make sense. Betty was tired. It was the end of practice and she kept landing short. Then on maybe her eighth dismount, Betty felt a pop. The next day, she couldn't walk. She had partially torn her hamstring and had to sit out of the U.S.-Romanian meet and take the next four weeks to recover. And if I could have just had that conversation, but I didn't feel like I could have that conversation. I felt like that conversation, if I were to have that, would turn back around on me into either them kicking me out, them not coaching me, them somehow alienating me in the gym, and I felt like I needed him. 
and I didn't want to lose that. I'm Amira Rose Davis. On this episode of American Prodigies, we're following Betty Okino. Her story unpacks the legacy of injury and replaceability in the sport. We'll start to understand why it's been so hard for Black gymnasts in particular to find their voice, to stand up for themselves and advocate for their needs, even when it goes against their coaches, their parents, or the whims of USA Gymnastics. Anything slightly askew, any little bit of like perceived talking back is going to be misjudged because of the color of the skin. Right, because it's not just that you're a sassy gymnast, you're you're a black girl, exactly. you're ungrateful. Exactly, you're... you're all whatever stereotypes they have already laid on you. Betty didn't start gymnastics until she was nine. Pretty late by prodigy standards. Like a lot of girls, it wasn't until Mary Lou Retton got perfect tens and won gold in L.A. in 1984 that Betty really formulated her dream. Then after I watched the Olympics, I was like, ah, that's so cool. I want to do that. I want to be on that stage. Betty put in the work. She became an elite gymnast at age 13. In 1990, it was time to follow in Mary Lou's footsteps. And Diane Durham's too, though Betty didn't know it then. She left home to train with Bella Caroli. Were you excited? Were you nervous? Were you a little of both? Where was your head at? All I knew is this man made Nadia an Olympic champion, Mary Lou an Olympic champion. Like all the athletes I look up to today. So this is where, this is where I'm supposed to be. Now, I keep thinking about your mom. Yeah. Because I'm thinking about like what it feels like to go from reading your daughter a book about Nadia and then all of a sudden shipping her off to train. With the person that trained Nadia. Right. right? Was she just like over the moon? She did not want me to go. I begged. Hmm. She kept trying to find ways like, can't you just like we make it work here, you know? But I that was insistent. And she didn't want to be the person that stood in the way of my dreams. So in her mind, I feel like she felt like I would go down try it out for a couple weeks and then be done with it and come home. And that's like kind of like where she was at for like the whole four years that I was there. Like every time I talked to her, she was like, so, I mean, you're kind of tired and complaining a lot. You can come home, you know, (laughs) and that would just piss me off. There was no way. Betty was too driven and she was really, really good. The first time I saw Betty Okino in the United States leotard walk out onto international competition floor, I was like, yeah, that's right. Gymnastics is not just for white people. That's Rebecca Schumann again. But then I saw her compete and I was like, she's got the body of a Soviet legend. Like she has the lines of, you know, someone from the greatest era of the Soviet team. Okay. Weird compliment, yes, but in 80s and 90s gymnastics speak, it's a huge one. Back then, international judges heavily favored what Rebecca refers to as the Soviet-style body. They had to look like ballerinas. They had to be thin, and their legs also had to have, like, beautiful musculature and just be perfectly, perfectly straight every single second that they were in the air. 
Like Diane Durham, Betty Okino had a strong dance background. But flawless gymnastics is especially hard if you're over five feet tall like Betty was. There was just more of her to see. More chances for the judges to spot form breaks and take points off. And so for Betty Okino to, first of all, be black and walking out there with the U.S. uniform on. And second of all, be like, I can Soviet Union my body better than these Soviet Union girls can. In 1992, Betty Okino was more graceful than half of the former Soviet team. And American gymnasts, the American program has always been more of a power gymnast program, largely because of the incredible feats of Diane Durham and Mary Lou Retton, sort of Caroli's earliest two protégés were both power gymnasts. But did you ever, like, look around and say, oh, I look different than, you know, my peers, you know, that are also tumbling beside me? Yeah, all the time. And then people pointed it out to me, the fact that I was, I was skinny, I was tall, I was brown, I was old. I mean... Gymnastics old to, like, all the other people that were doing it. By 13, they were veterans. They'd been doing it since they were five. You know, at 13, I I only had, like, a few years under my belt of doing gymnastics. So, and it's never, uh, it was never, like, direct. It was always me overhearing conversations. You know, well, she started too late, but, you know, she could have been good. It was always that. Betty overheard a lot of conversations. She got famous for it even as a kid. In interviews with NBC during the 1991 McDonald's American Cup, she and Bella told this story. When I first came to the gym, they didn't know that I could speak Romanian. And when they didn't want us to hear something, they'd speak Romanian. You know, after a while, I figured that, oh, wait a second. Even before I start to, to step into the scene, they're already following some indications. What, what was in mind? I said, Carly, these kids really, really read my mind, read my thoughts. Uh, what's going on? What's going on was Betty was eavesdropping on Bella and Marta's conversations in Romanian and translating and reporting back to the other girls. My question has always been, why was it assumed that you didn't? If your mom why would, do you think? I know though? why, but I want exactly, <laughs> exactly. You know, this is why it was assumed because I do not look like I would speak Romanian. Just like Kobe does not look like he could speak German, Italian, French. But I'm also interested in because so when you go down to the ranch, it sounds like there's also very little communication between like the Crowleys and your parents because my thing would have been like. At some point before my child went somewhere, I would talk to them. And I feel like if I was a Romanian mother sending my child like that, I would have like... You would have had that conversation? Yeah, I would have been like, oh, we're Romanian. So the first time she went with me and she did speak with them and they knew that she was Romanian. But I think they assumed, again, because my father's black in Ugandan and because I don't look Romanian, I am also brown, Ugandan and Romanian. That he, they just assumed that my mom only spoke, but I never would have learned the language. Whatever. All the melanin blocks out the other languages. I know. know? Yeah, exactly. And you can't absorb. (laughs) You can't get it. (laughs) So Betty had great lines, but she didn't fit the mold of an American gymnast. She understood Romanian, but she wasn't European enough for the Carolis. 
because she was black. Like many mixed kids, she belonged everywhere and nowhere at the same time. But the culture of elite gymnastics required fitting in. And Betty tried. I was frustrated with my hair texture. Mm, with your curls? Mm-hmm. Well, because, well, Houston, do you live in Texas? I do. It's humid as hell. Okay. So you know what this turns into. Yes. In that. And especially combine like a bunch of sweat and then like chalk dust. It was like like a Brillo was what my hair was like. And there wasn't any, you know, anything I could do to, about it. So I would just I would just pull it back or I started wearing like the braid. It was frustrating because all my teammates, it was during that time, everyone was doing like the, the, the one like bang Flat all bang curl. curl. Yeah. <laughs> and you know, my hair didn't do that. Did you try once? Of course. I tried <laughs> lots of times. I tried everything that they did. You know, just so I could make like my ponytail look like theirs did or my and it didn't. So it was just one of those things that you. You deal with, right? The desire to fit in wasn't just internal. Betty got constant messaging from her coaches. Elite gymnastics isn't a place to be different. You do the bangs. You don't add personality to your floor routines. You do the choreography you're told to do to the music that Marta Caroli pulled from her closet of cassette tapes. She would always like, here, there, here's, here are three choices you can choose from. I really like this one. <laughs> okay. <laughs> as robotic as it can feel, you try to fit in because you know you're replaceable. At the Carolis gym in the early 90s, there were dozens of girls vying for a chance to be a member of the six pack, the elite gymnast that the Carolis paid attention to. And if you didn't do as you were told, someone else could take your place. The icon for success was Bella Caroli, who was this awful, narcissistic, I mean, you could almost call him a sociopath just because he had no conscience at all about what he would put those girls through. That's Joan Ryan, author of Little Girls in Pretty Boxes, an oral history of the cultures of women's figure skating and gymnastics in the 80s and early 90s. Joan wrote about how Bella always had a shining star on his team, but his approval was conditional. He'd try to motivate the others by pitting them against each other, making them angry, making them want to be the star. He'd give them horrible nicknames, usually something to do with their weight. Betty, with her long arms and legs, was a pregnant spider. It was like a cult. He did produce some champions. You know, we don't see the bodies, you know, stacked up on the path to the Olympics of all the ones who did make it. But what he did and that culture produced, it echoes through every level of gymnastics and it's totally hidden. Jalisa Gomez, another brown girl at the Crowley's gym, didn't make it. She trained with the Carolis in the late 80s, just before Betty's time there. Bella pushed Jaleesa mentally and physically. He promised her parents that she'd be somebody, then called her stupid, lazy, and fat in the gym, or punished her for being injured, which she often was. Jaleesa didn't fight back. 
She trained through pain, doing dangerous skills that even her teammates knew she wasn't ready for. But she didn't complain. See, Jalisa's parents were the children of migrant farm workers. They were first-generation Mexican-Americans who took on multiple jobs to be able to afford to send their talented daughter into these elite gymnastic spaces. So Jalisa didn't say anything. Eventually, she stopped telling her parents about her training sessions. And the parents don't even know that that slowly had happened, that corrosion had happened in the relationship, in their own daughter, who is not going to say anything because she wants to succeed more than anything. She doesn't want to disappoint her family. She doesn't want to embed any doubt. She doesn't want to disappoint them. One day in 1987, Jaleesa had had enough of the Carolis' abuse. She got in the car after practice and she told her mother she never wanted to go back. They started looking around for another coach and they found Al Fong. Fong thought he could take Jaleesa all the way to the 1988 Olympic Games. She just needed some consistency, especially when it came to vault. With Bella, Jaleesa had been training a Yurchenko, a relatively new and popular high-scoring vault. It requires gymnasts to round off onto the springboard, flip backwards blindly onto their hands on the vault, and then flip again onto their feet on the other side. If you can't picture it, just know it's the vault style you're most likely to see on TV today. But on the 1980s gymnastics equipment, with less padding and a smaller vault, Yurchenkos were really dangerous. And Jalisa's Yurchenkos, they were either beautiful or terrifying. Which one it would be was always unpredictable. She knows she can't do that vault. She knows it's at the edge of her ability at that moment. And she does it anyway, in part for her freaking coach. You can do this. You can do this. You got to do this. If you don't do this, you're never going to get on the international scene. This is so important to do this. She ignores her own reality, her own everything in her body, I'm sure, is saying, oh, God, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. And of course, you know, what happened? In 1988, Jalisa missed one of her feet on the springboard while doing a Yurchenko at a meet in Japan. She crashed forehead first into the vault and snapped her neck. Jalisa Gomez lived on a ventilator for three years, slipping in and out of comas. In August of 91, Jalisa died. She was 18 years old. According to Joan, USGF only briefly mentioned Jalisa's death in its official magazine. One of the parents of another Fong gymnast reported that nothing was said about Jalisa in the gym. If gymnasts around the country knew about her death, they kept their fear buried and they kept doing your chenkos. We don't want to leave the impression that these girls were hauled into this gymnastics world, you know, against their will or whatever. No, these are the most driven athletes I have ever been around. They loved it. And then that drive and love for the sport was totally exploited until they started to hate it. 
this thing that was the center of their lives, that was their joy, then became something they just had to endure. In the early 90s, teenage Betty Okino trained with the Carolis, enduring negative messages about her hair, her body, her skin tone, her language, covering up any fear, refusing to leave, and risk being replaced by another Caroli prodigy. The fear was that they would kick me out. They wouldn't train me. Then who the heck would train me? Where would I go? Would I not be able to have this dream come true? Betty just shut up and flipped, even when it hurt. You do simply as you're told. You trust that they know exactly what's best. You came to them so that they could make you a champion or help you achieve this dream that you wanted, which is to go to the Olympics, and they know the way. I remember I did 20 or 30 routines a day, but Bella told us always to say uh, that we train only three hours. Was not true, we train seven, eight hours a day. That's Nadia Komenich on NBC again, back at that 1992 Sudafed skating and gymnastics spectacular. Bella, I was just talking with uh, Bob Costas about the training that we did 15 years ago. It's different now? You know, there are some differences, but basically it's the same. The same hard work, the same every day, a lot of hours spent it. As the Olympic trials drew nearer, those numbers only increased. And Betty Okino's body kept the score of that training in injuries. What was the full extent of your back injury? Um, I fractured, clean fracture across uh, the L3 and the L4 vertebrae. And then you had a screw in your knee. My knee, um, the patella tendon tore away from the bone. If it sounds like Betty's just indifferently stating facts, it's because injuries, especially back and leg injuries, are that common. Gymnastics hurts. I hurt myself at the Crowley camp at one of the competitions. I actually tore my Achilles the year of the Olympics, just three months before. And I knew the second that I did my beam dismount, I was like, something's wrong. Something's wrong. There are everyday aches that you just push through. When kids first start swinging bars, for instance, coin-sized flaps of skin rip away from their hands and leave blood stains everywhere. But that's kind of a badge of honor. You get over it and you keep swinging. It's also common to hear about ligament tears, concussions, broken toes, so many broken toes, and stress fractures in the backs of 10-year-olds. The gymnastics doctor looked at my x-ray and was like, oh, you're fine. Um, Just take it easy. I know something's wrong. I was like, mom, take me to the doctor. I need an x-ray right now. Then I got an MRI and then I was like, no, something is still wrong. And so it was like, it took three months and finally went to the third doctor. And he was like, it's obvious you have a fracture. So you should have been staying off of this. In the gym, girls are taught to ignore their pain to cover up wounds that don't leave blood behind with miles of tape, to treat major surgeries like routine procedures, to get shady advice from gymnastics doctors in league with coaches who just want their kids well enough to compete. The second surgery's over, it's like, okay, what can we do to try to stay in shape and make it the easiest recovery process possible? 
not just easiest, but like the fastest, trying to get back out there, you know? And lots of gymnasts comply. They want to win. And they know there are a million little girls waiting in line behind them to take their places. So they get really good at keeping quiet, even while their bodies are breaking. Well, I had like a disc herniation around 10. That's Dr. Courtney Johnson, known as Dr. Kojo. She's the director of sports medicine for an advocacy group called Brown Girls Do Gymnastics. And then when I was 13, I was doing a back handspring on beam. I missed my hands, hit my head. It was dramatic. And I felt something not right, like my back. It was a weird pop. It was immediately painful. So I remember going to the doctor and he just described it as your vertebrae are supposed to sit on top of each other. And now one of them is slipped forward. Dr. Kojo is also a gymnastics judge and physical therapist. She works with people not only to rehab from injury, but to protect their bodies and prevent injury in the first place. Because she has experience with the kind of coaching treatment that leads to long-term injuries. They used to always, always, always talk about my toe point. I don't know if the, I remember them like hounding on it with other girls, but... I realize now that's kind of a, a bit of a stereotype for Black women in gymnastics, dance, you know, anything. I didn't have that perfect, like, ballerina, like, what the image of a perfect toe point is. I definitely didn't have that. Um, I mean, <laughs> I would, like, be sitting on the, you know, edge of a mat, on bars, and just in between all my reps, one coach was just literally just trying to force my feet to point. They were just convinced, like, if they physically bent my feet that somehow they were going to point better. (laughs) They never did. (laughs) Like Betty, Dr. Kojo took this kind of training to be normal and didn't push back. But once she started studying physical therapy and learning to be a judge, something clicked. Normal was bad. So there's clearly also just like a culture that is like... Tape it up and get out there. Tape it up and get out there. Exactly. Yeah. That's Rebecca Schumann again. What does this do to a kid psychologically, do you think? Well, it's hard to say because I'm inclined to say it builds character and that you should be able to deal with a small amount of pain in your life. But my old coach would say, you know, if it hurts, don't do it. But it had this undertone of like, you're a weakling and just don't complain about it. I mean, Suni Lee just won the Olympics. She trained for her final two years before the Olympics, essentially on a broken foot. She was in just constant and acute pain all the time and was like, I'm just going to do it. It hurts, but no, it doesn't. I just, nope, it doesn't matter. And so some of it is from the athlete's perspective as well. But then you have to wonder, is that because of 40 years of conditioning from the Corollis to be like, right, you're only injured if you say so. Because that was essentially Marta Caroli's whole M.O. was like, injuries are for weaklings and you're only injured if you complain. It was like the way things were done then. You just keep training and going until something breaks. If it doesn't break, that means you're really strong and you're going to be a champion. Back in 1992, Betty was hurt. The fractures in her vertebrae meant that she had a 2% chance of paralysis if she kept training. After world championships that year, she started wearing a back brace and popped eight Advils a day. Her injuries and surgeries meant that she had to sit out of nationals and the Olympic trials. 
Bella started to ignore her, to focus on his other gymnast. He told NBC he didn't think Betty was rising to the occasion. Always based on nagging things, sometimes I could consider even childish things, which never been uh, giving me the full justification. She is not up to the working performances and the working rhythm. Even though some people may think that I am not really injured, um, I mean, there's nothing I can do to change that the way they think. The only thing I can do is prove everybody wrong who says that I can't do it. Okay, let's pause right here because I really want to break this down. Here we have Bella Caroli insinuating that Betty Okino was being childish, not working up to her full ability, that she might even be faking an injury. Betty, in response, is assuring people that she's really hurt, but still very much dedicated to going to the Olympics. And this is where I want to remind everybody that Betty was giving this interview as a 16-year-old who has a three-inch screw literally holding her knee together and a 2% chance of fucking paralysis. Far from childish. Barcelona is still a very true reality. I mean, as long as I can still walk, I'm going to try to make it there. At the time, Betty said her injuries were stress-related. Standard gymnastics over conditioning. But of course, there was more layered on top of that. Food was restricted. And anytime we were away with them, Bella in particular, we didn't eat. We didn't eat enough for what we were training. So when you work out food restricted, you get clumsy. So that's another great thing about this whole system that makes you be hungry all the time. So you're hungry, that makes you angry, it makes you faint, it makes you clumsy. So not only were Caroli's girls always very thin and small, they were also always hurt. Even Betty, who remember, was out Sovieting the Soviets when it came to having so-called long lean lines, was subject to this culture. Meanwhile, you know, in the gym, I'm being weighed and being told that I'm that I'm I weigh too much because I'm taller than every single one of my teammates. So I weigh about 12 to 15 pounds more than them. But it was an issue. And of course, my grandmother who lived with me, you know, is a large farmhand Romanian woman. So she was always like, you you're going to eat. You have to eat more. (laughs) She was feeding. you. This is not right. You don't look right to me. <laughs> you got to eat more. And then we'd get in, get in arguments with my grandma and she would just get so pissed because like her life is baking and cooking and people eating, you know? As we saw with Jalisa Gomez, the pressure of elite gymnastics could be fatal. In 1994, Christy Heinrich, who was also coached by Al Fong, died as a result of the eating disorders she developed as a gymnast. She was 22. Today, Al Fong is still coaching. To be clear, this was not just an issue for the Caroli six-pack or Fong's gymnasts. It was the entire culture. Rebecca's former coach saw food restrictions at the hands of one of the Caroli's biggest competitors. She once saw a gymnast's coach restrict her food to a single muffin for a one day. So the gymnast, and this is like a superstar United States gymnast, a third of the muffin for breakfast, a third of the muffin for lunch, and a third of the muffin for dinner. I mean, she could be anybody from this era, really. 
And so these things combined, I think the lack of nutrition, the lack of rest, and the overtraining was what created pretty much all of those injuries. And so as a result, 92 trials came along and the best girls on the team couldn't even go. Betty couldn't go. After two days of Olympic trials, the United States Gymnastics Federation named their women's team. Sort of. Because so many gymnasts were injured and had to sit out all or most of the trials, USGF stalled their official decision. They held a second private trials at a training camp in Florida. And girls who had been announced as part of the Olympic team at the official trials were now bumped. But Betty was in. They got together and they were like, listen, we have to get her into the Olympics somehow. We can't. This is our first chance of ever winning a medal at a contested Olympics. And without Betty Aquino's beautiful international look, we can't do it. We have, you know, two tiny ones, three powerful people, and we need her. It's wild to me because it's like, I just keep thinking of Diane being left off the team. You know, like, a, what was it, a, two cycles before? Yeah. And I feel like, I just wish somebody who's there was like, duh, like, this has to happen in the same way that, you know, happened for Betty. That would have changed the trajectory of gymnastics in an unbelievable way. She would have won, and the face of, like, America finally on the world gymnastics mm. stage would have been a black woman. Between the convoluted selection process, the pain and the struggle with injury, and trying to fight to prove her worth to her own coaches, Betty says the 1992 Olympics were bittersweet. It was um, enthusiastic to like realize a dream come true and to be there. Like there was, you know, so much struggle on the way there. And it was kind of like, oh, yay, you know, we finally made it here. But then at the same time, there was so much pressure and stress. Even at the Olympics, surrounded by great smells and foods in new countries, Betty and her teammates were malnourished. They monitored like everything we ate. So and so that became like the theme for me <laughs> almost through that whole Olympics, like finding and getting food. So Carrie, myself, and Kim shared a dorm room. And then, you know, there's two others in another room and two others in another room. And we all had the same, like, apartment. Um, there was, like, a sliding door that kind of, like, slid across the window and then slid back. So then you could, like, tuck things behind the door. Um, and as long as nobody moved the slider, then you were good. Did you guys ever get caught? Yes. Betty helped the U.S. take home a bronze medal in the team all around. It was the first time the American women's gymnastics team had been on a medal stand at an uncontested Olympics, meaning that the dominant Soviet team was actually there. I didn't feel like I earned my place of value on that team until I made all-around finals. Then I knew that mine was like one the second highest score on our whole team so that every single one of my scores counted to that team medal. And that's when I was like, okay, I belong here. And we go to Aquino for the United States on the bars. 9.887, justifying Bella Karodi's decision that she should be in the team in spite of missing the trials and the U.S. championship. As they always do, NBC pulled together some fluff pieces to air in between Olympic events. For the last few cycles, 
and even during the non-Olympic gymnastics coverage, they'd focus their attention on Bella, and the lovable tyrant was a big personality image that he'd been cultivating. During a fluff piece in 92, though, one commentator paused to reflect, saying, Many wonder what really goes on behind closed doors at Caroli's gym. Do his rigorous training methods border on abuse? There wasn't much follow-up. And for decades, Betty's own answer was no. Like the Caroli's former gymnast, Nadia Comaneci and Mary Lou Retton, Betty publicly denied that their coaching was abusive. She went on the record in interviews and books, even on Oprah, claiming that the Caroli's training was tough, but fair. I had justified that type of training um, as simply cruel, but not necessarily abusive. And I, I justified that for a long time. That's Betty on her YouTube channel in June of 2020. She had just watched Athlete A, a documentary that follows reporters from the Indianapolis Star as they broke the Larry Nassar sexual abuse story. Betty wasn't part of the documentary or the Nassar case, but seeing young gymnasts speak out about their experiences caused her to question her own past. And it was only recently in the last year as I researched that I began realizing that I had trauma from my gymnastics experience and the training experience that I experienced at uh, Caroli's, to be quite honest. When enough of that happens day in, day out for years, you start doubting your own truth. You start doubting what you're actually experiencing. You're saying, okay, I guess I'm not hurt. Okay, I guess I am fat. That's Joan Ryan again. And can you imagine just being totally stripped of your own reality? That everything is about just what other pe- your parents are telling you, your coach is telling you? You no longer have any agency over your own body or even over your own thoughts. I mean, and how do you, how do you get over that? How do you go into the rest of your life just never really trusting yourself? And it's interesting with um, acute traumas, how until we're ready to I guess process them and see them for what they are, they remain, they can remain hidden to us. That's our body's uh, denial system, defense system, a sense uh, our protection that allows us to uh, still function until we can actually deal. And once I started understanding what impact words and those actions like weighing someone for a young woman have on the the development of one's 
brain and one's idea of self and how they look at themselves. It allowed me to sort of unlock that door inside of myself and step in and realize there is this hurt young woman curled up in the corner there that had been affected by that experience. It's also something that seeps in right at a really formative phase, right? Teenage girls who aren't in a highly competitive elite environment like gymnastics are already having body issues. They're already having ideas about food. And then to have the adults around you constantly be picking on that, it buries deep. And it's it's not easy to revisit that. No, it's totally, it's, it's uncomfortable. (laughs) That's the best way to put it. It's deeply, deeply uncomfortable and it takes work. I'm wondering if coming from your family and your background and your parents, it's one of the things that also made it harder to process later now when you're going through your journey, because then it actually required not just the unpacking of your experiences at the ranch, but actually your childhood. And that feels very fraught. Absolutely. My parents are amazing and wonderful people. Yet, the fact is, they both grew up in very different worlds. As a child, (laughs) you don't speak out. You don't ever challenge authority. You know, adults are adults and you never challenge them. It's yes, ma'am, yes, sir. And they always know better, essentially, sort of a world. And there wasn't exactly like a freedom and an openness to to talk, to communicate, um, and especially to an adult. So move into the world of, you know, Bella and Marta and that training scenario, very similar. I think that's why for so many years after um, I retired from the sport, I would defend the Carolis because at the same time I was defending my upbringing. I was defending my parents. I was defending, you know, like everything that I, that I knew And that was what I perceived to be good and right and true. Um, You know, and my parents defended them also. So partially felt like if I, you know, anything else would be an attack against my, my family, my history. After the 92 Olympics, Betty left gymnastics completely. She didn't watch the next Olympics. You know, the one in Atlanta in 96 with the Magnificent Seven, when Betty's former teammate, Dominique Dawes, became the first African-American woman to win a team gold and an individual event medal. At the time, it wasn't like clear as to why, but I, I felt like I wanted to find my identity in something else. And I didn't want people associating me with that, with, with gymnastics. I wanted the opposite of what that world provided. Like, I wanted a voice. I wanted to speak out. I wanted to like be emotional and for it to be okay. I wanted, um, I just wanted, I wanted more and it was very restricting. I wanted the opposite of restricting. Yeah. You wanted freedom. I wanted freedom. Betty found freedom and she eventually found her way back to gymnastics. Today, she's a member of the USAG national staff. She teaches dance, choreography, and the elusive concept of artistry to elite gymnasts. So in 2019, I became a part of the national coaching staff and I agreed because I wanted to be a part of the change in culture. I wanted to be 
a watchdog on behalf of the young athletes. I wanted to help foster and create an environment that I knew uh, gymnastics could be. It's a beautiful sport. Do you ever have something you do where you're like, I'm doing the exact opposite of what I was taught? Yeah. <laughs> yes, especially when it comes to an athlete expressing that they're having like an injury or a dis physical discomfort or, um, you know, something hurts. When it comes to that, I notice like that the inner reaction of what I was trained like and how I was trained um, and my current and new understanding of listen, accept, observe, and then guide. That's where I noticed like the biggest like difference between how I was trained and how I now coach. Because you're allowed to have bad days. I grew up in a world where you didn't, you weren't allowed to have bad days. <laughs> Be silent and do what you're supposed to do. I am hopeful for the future of gymnastics. And I get to see it in the eyes of the young athletes who were never part of this old system. They are reaping the rewards of that change now as they get to experience doing the sport in an environment that empowers them. This episode of American Prodigies was reported and hosted by me, Amira Rose Davis. Story editing and production by Jessica Luther. If you want to hear more of my interviews with gymnasts, subscribe to Blue Wire's Apple Podcast subscription channel. Along with ad-free episodes, you can listen to my full interview with Dr. Courtney Johnson. Search Blue Wire and Apple Podcasts for access to all the extended interviews. It's free for the first seven days. Subscribe today. Jessica Bodiford and Kelly Hardcastle-Jones are our senior producers. Sound design, mix, and mastering by Camille Stennis. Isabel Jocelyn, Kayla Stokes, and Jordan Liggins provided production assistance. Fact-checking was done by Mary Mathis and Jessica Luther. Production coordination by Devin Shepard. We had research help from Shawetha Surendran, Mariam Khan, and Mary Mathis. This episode featured archival audio from NBC, BBC, and Betty Okino's YouTube channel. American Prodigies is executive produced by Peter Moses and John Yales. I don't know. The first thing is, do you know we're birthday twins? Are we really? June 4th? June 4th. Oh my gosh. Yes, I know. I was like, I recognize Gemini energy anywhere. Oh, that's so great. <laughs>